Uh, if you have your Bibles, please open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10. We are continuing our study. We've been in Luke all year, and we are in this turning the corner of, the, of what's happening in the Gospel of Luke. Um, as you're turning to Luke, chapter 10, the, the first eight chapters of Luke focus on, on sort of Jesus' ministry in the Galilee region, uh, his hometown, those surrounding areas. Um, miracles, just various things that he'd done in that area. In chapter 9, Jesus begins sharing with the disciples that, that things are going to get different now. He, they're on their way to, to southern Israel, to Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, he begins sharing with them that, hey, we're not just going down for another Passover celebration. This Passover is going to be different. Um, I'm going to be offered um, as a sacrifice, I'm going to fall into the hands of men. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to be buried and I'm going to raise on the third day. And this came at great surprise to them. They were not ready to kind of receive this information about Jesus. And chapter nine, um, there's the transfiguration where Jesus pulls Peter, John and James. He reveals his his glory to them. Uh, Peter puts a foot in his mouth by, you know, kind of, you know, getting a little ahead of a little ahead of himself. And then there's just a series of sort of failings um, by the apostles to where Jesus kind of looks at him and says, how long do I have to put up with this? To where, you know, John, the apostle of love that we know him as, he basically asked Jesus, hey, can I flip the red switch and pray the, the, the nuclear weapon prayer and just to send fire from heaven on the people of Samaria. And Jesus is like, I came to save men's life, not like, come on, John. And then the last section of Luke chapter 9, this verses 57 through 62 of chapter 9, which we looked at last week, it's three different people. And John MacArthur suggests that these three men represent three things that hold people back from following after Jesus um, the first guy came up to Jesus and said, Lord, I'll follow you. Wherever you go, I'll follow. And in the Gospel of Matthew, we learned that this guy was a scribe. So he was very high in religious circles. And for him to come and to refer to Jesus as teacher was significant. But Jesus' response to him doesn't make sense. Here's this guy that says, hey, I'll follow you wherever you go. We think, boy, that's awesome. We, we got another one that joined the team. But Jesus looks at him and says, you know, the foxes have dens and places to sleep and the birds of the air they have nests but the son of man there's no place for him to lay his head and so the picture here is that that jesus sees this guy and the heart really is that the guy probably saw jesus feed five thousand men with five loaves and two fish and he sees the provision and he thinks well if i follow after jesus then i'll have personal comfort but Jesus tells him, listen, there's not personal comfort in following after me. I don't have a place to lay my head, and there's no guarantee. And the idea is that this guy turns away. And then Jesus looks at a second guy, and he says, you follow after me. And this guy says, I'll follow you, but first let me bury my father. And so there's two sort of options. The, the predominant option that most commentators sort of think is that the dad's not dead, but he may die in 10 years, 20 years. He doesn't really know. But the son is being trained in the family business. And for him to walk away would be to, to be walking away from his inheritance, from what his family would give to him. And so it's this, this desire for, for wealth and riches. The other option is that the guy is dead and that there's this funeral to go to. 
And most people don't like that option because it makes Jesus's words seem a little bit more severe. Like, come on, Jesus, why can't the guy bury his father? But when we look at the bigger picture in all of human history, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, Jesus coming to earth and his living this 33 years and what he did, it turned human history upside down. And this man had the opportunity to follow and go to the cross with Jesus to witness these things. But he was going to turn away for burying his father. Now, I don't know which one it is, but the third guy steps up and says, Jesus, I'll follow you. But first, let me say goodbye to my family. And the picture here is for personal relationships that this, well, I'll follow you, but I first have to go back and tie off uh, loose ends with the family and then I'll follow after you. And the idea of that so many people wanting their family's approval before following after Jesus results when they go back to say, hey, I'm going to follow after Jesus. Their family talks them out of it. And so we get these three people and very convicting for me in studying that. Because in all three examples, I see that in myself. Like all three of those, there's times when, man, I long for personal comfort. Like I like having a place to stay. I like having a house. I like these sort of comforts. Um, you know, I, you know, it's prudent to save for retirement and to put stuff away. And, you know, especially last week when you have investments and the stock market is going all over the place, it's suddenly like, like, where's my trust? And then relationships of, of wanting to please people. And I hesitate in certain situations that I'm ashamed of, that I'm more interested in what people think about me than what, I, than what God thinks. And there are times when I feel like I want to respond in a certain way to God, but I hold back because what, man, what would my friends think about this? What would my family think? What would the person standing behind me who loves me think? You know, I kind of reference. It was kind of a joke during the first service. Between the first service and the second service last week, I thought about, like, well, raising my hands during worship, there are times when I feel led to kind of just to surrender and lift my hands. And as I do it, I sit up front. And I think, oh, man, if I raise my hand, then they might see some of my tattoos, and then what will they think? The reality is, is none of you care. <laughs> like, but in my mind, I think, okay, so maybe I'll do this, this half hold up, to kind of please God and not have to worry about what people think of me. But the whole issue, and the issue is not about tattoos. The issue is in my heart that the thought of what people would think about me trumps what God thinks about me and me wanting to please him. And so in chapter 10, as we get to the story, we see like a lot of failure. And then we're going to see a huge group of people that continue to follow. And I didn't have him. I wish I thought it before last service, but in the middle of the service, I thought of a guy from the early 1900s. His name was Shackleton. He was a British explorer, a sailor. And he would go down to Antarctica and very dangerous missions that he would run going down there trying to discover the world. On one journey, he put like a you know piece of paper at all the bars and stuff around London. And he basically says, you know, I'm looking for some men willing to basically you know, give up their life. Like the odds of you surviving this are slim to none. The, the pay is going to be miserable. Um, and the likelihood of you dying is, is, you know, but we need about 20 guys. And he had like 500 guys come forward. You think who would volunteer for this? And then it was a tragic, I mean, the whole book about Shackleton is about his journey of keeping his leadership and keeping his men alive while they're basically shipwrecked in Antarctica. And I, it's kind of the picture of like Jesus kind of discourages people like count the cost before you follow me. 
And like, who's going to follow? Well, now we're going to see this huge group saying, no, I'm going to toe the line. I'm going. I'm giving all. Lord, we have nowhere else to go, but you're the Messiah, and I'm going to follow you. And it's a great little story. So Luke chapter 10, verse 1, we'll pray and we'll read. Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we come before you, and as we work our way through the gospel of Luke, I just thank you, Lord, for um, this gospel is so challenging and so convicting, and and it, it steps on my toes, it steps on our toes, Lord, if we are honest with ourselves and you. And, and Lord, we thank you that you, you save us by grace um, through faith, Lord. And, and yet you don't just leave us there, Lord, that you call us in grace, um, walking with you, Lord, that you challenge us to, to live out our lives in a way that's pleasing to you. Um, Father, we thank you that in your... Um, challenging us you're convicting us lord i just thank you for the fruit um, that it produces that we are refined like gold um, through the challenges that we face in this life and we um, lord we ask that you would help us um, to keep an eternal perspective because this life isn't all that there is and so we look forward lord we press on we pray that you would help us to be faithful um, today in this life with whatever you've called us to um, lord as we look at this story may your spirit Help us to understand the meaning. May you soften our hearts, Lord, and, and uh, teach us something from your word. Uh, we love you, Father, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 10, verse 1. Now after this, the Lord appointed 70 others and sent them in pairs ahead of him to every city and place where he himself was going to come. And he was saying to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Go, behold, I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes, and greet no one on the way. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I say to you, it will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, to which occurred in you, they would have rep repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted into heaven, to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me. And he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. The 70 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. 
Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wished to see the things which you see and did not see them and hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. And Father, we thank you for your word. We just ask you for help now as we go through this text and we pray it in Jesus name. Amen. So the very first verse in chapter 10 sort of sets out the big picture of what's happening. We're told That after these three guys are turned away, Jesus gets a number of people and he's going to send them out in pairs to towns and surrounding villages that he himself is going to go to. So they're kind of like mini ambassadors for Jesus. They're to go to these towns, these 35 or 36 different towns. They're to go there, preach the kingdom, do things. And Jesus then will catch up and go there. And they've already kind of had, you know, a, a pre warning shot of the Messiah's coming. Now, the first thing we kind of stumble across is I did read that there were 70 others, and most of your Bibles probably say 72. And if you're following along and you're being sharp or you're like me, when I first started going to church, you're highly critical. They go, ah, there's a problem with the Bible. There is, you know, inconsistent. It's not reliable. It's not trustworthy. And I struggled over the first, like, how much to share. Like, I, you know, I don't know how big into textual criticism you guys are. Like, I can really get into it and have a lot of fun. Um, I know Dana's kind of, she, she's smiling, you know, at the, at, the, at the, when somebody smiles at the word textual criticism, that's, a, that's kind of concerning, you know, because it's not. Like, but, the, but the question is valid. How do we know that the thing that we read, this Bible, how do we know it's authentic? How do we know some 2,000 to 5,000 years old, if you're talking from the Old Testament, how do we know that it's trustworthy, it's reliable, that we sit here and say it's the word of God? That's a good question. And it's amazing how God preserved it. And trying to communicate this um, is difficult. But we do not have the original writing of any book of the Bible. This book, Luke, was written by Luke to a guy, Theophilus. There was one writing that he wrote. Then from that writing, copies were made. And then from those copies, copies were made of those copies, and copies were made of those copies, and copies and copies and copies and copies. copies So there's thousands of, of manuscripts that are not the original, but they're handwritten by professionals that were scribes, that that was their job. We in museums all over the world have like hundreds of thousands of manuscripts dating from very early. I don't know off the top of my head what the earliest Luke manuscript is, but maybe 20 years following the original writing to 100 years after the original writing. When you're talking about ancient documents, that is an amazing closeness to the original occurrence. Very reliable. 
we, we can't do that with George Washington, writing, validating that George Washington was our first president. And so then scholars, as they put together various translations, they view all, I mean, guys with very thick glasses that can read for days on end and look at very boring stuff that know the languages, they compare and they contrast. And so then when they come to the translation of writing out Luke chapter 10, verse 1, they realize, okay, we have, we have a discrepancy here. A, a number of the texts say 72 and others say 70. And so then they kind of conclude, they make their decision, and some translations will go ahead with 72. Other guys say, like the New American Center says, we're going to go with 70. And then they'll put a footnote. So in mine, there's a little one there. And then if you go over to the side, I go there, and it says, some manuscripts read 72. Sometimes you have more than that. But, but the point here is it's absolutely fascinating that, that these are the discrepancies we have. And there's all kind of reasons I could talk for a while about why they chose 70 over 72 in the New American Standard or why the NIV, I think New King James and other translations went with 72. But this is the sort of discrepancy. Where this, whether there was 70 or 72, it absolutely has no bearing on the message of the story. And, the, and it also shows us that there's no, it's virtually impossible to distort what the scriptures say. Like there are other translations. I don't, I don't normally like to throw stones at other groups unless it's absolutely mandatory. But there are groups that will distort the New Testament and come up with their own translation. And everybody says this is impossible. You're not looking at the, at the manuscripts, the overwhelming evidence of all of this. I made an example like, okay, I could write on a piece of paper. In the year 2010, there will come a guy by the name of Gunner. He's going to be an amazing guy. And we think that um, everybody should bless him with all sorts of stuff and money and wealth and stuff. I'd crumple it up. I'd put it through the washing machine. I'd burn the edges. I'd sneak over to Egypt and I'd dig into the ground and I'd bury it there. And then like 10 years later, I'd say, oh, I archaeologists, I think there's some manuscripts over there. They dig up and they pull up this piece of paper. They date it. I did an amazing job to date it way back then. But then they look at the 100,000 other copies of the Bible I'm trying to distort. They say, there's no way this is authentic. This is so, so God has put in this safeguard that we can know that we have an authentic copy of the scriptures. It's fascinating. Then there's no question that the source we have is authentic to the original writings. I'm probably doing a horrible job explaining that, but let's get back to the story. <laughs> I, I kind of think that there were 72. The New American Standard, I think normally when there's numbers, they err on the side of caution, and then they'll say, okay, we'll go with a lower number so that nothing's exaggerated sort of thing. But likely there's 72. And they're to go out to proclaim the message, and he's going to send them out two by two. Verse 2. He sits down from verse 2 all the way down to verse 16. Jesus is going to give these disciples. It's not a part of the 12. These are 72 different people. He's going to kind of give them their instructions for traveling. The first thing he says to them is the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. This is an agricultural sort of culture. And he says, listen, there's all kind of work out there. Like there's so much work to be done out there. 
And there are so few of you, you're not going to be able to do it all. When I look at agriculture and harvesting and the, the, you know, the harvest being plentiful, this was a good year at the Hanson home. You know, I, I've been talking for four years about my fruit trees not producing. Like one of the, you know, one of the most proud moments that I had during VBS was when our neighbor came and dropped off their, their, our, she lives on our street and she dropped off her kids. She's like, man, I've been stopping my husband to look at your nectarine tree. It has got so much fruit on it. I'm like, that's right. Four years of love and labor. But the problem with like fruit trees is like when they mature, it's like they're all, they're all matured at the same time. And I'm out at the tree, like the whole family, like we're all like at the tree, just stuffing ourselves with nectarines, fighting the birds off, trying to give them away. We can't, we can't keep up. And I can only imagine if I had like 10 of these nectarine trees, let alone like 500 or a thousand. When I drive through central California and I see farmers with rows of stuff, it's like, how do they get this to like the shelf without it going bad? It amazes me how they can do this. And the, and Jesus saying, as I'm sending you out, the need is going to be so great, so overwhelming, and there's not enough people to reach all of the people that you need to reach. Last night I got a call from, he's not one of our missionaries, but he's connected to one of our missionaries. You know, the Mannings in Mongolia, uh, Josh's sister, Becca, is married to a guy named Jeremiah. He called me, they're having some problems, basically visiting the guy's house, long story short, he got his middle toe shot off by a guy he's trying to raise support with. Lord's do It's really bad. I laughed at him. It was hilarious. He's okay, but he, like the last part of his toe. And he's like, well, I think, I'm like, you know, there are easier ways to raise money. Like, you know, he's like, well, no, the insurance is going to give us some money for pain and suffering. And, and uh, it's going to really help us get out the door. I'm like, man, this is one of the coolest stories. You're going to be able to parlay this one for a long time about suffering for Jesus and getting over to East Asia. And talking with him, he's like, listen, I'm not like, I'm not, I would like to get together. I'd like to come share at Valley Baptist Church. And we're not trying to like hit you guys up for money. And he's like, I just want to share. And, and, and I'm like, I, I totally understand. And it's a struggle because the churches, and especially if you have a worldview of like, hey, God wants to reach all of the world. It's overwhelming. Like, I wish I could just write a check for every missionary that comes through here that there's so much need. But we can't. Like even in Valley Center, like there's about five of us evangelical pastors in Valley Center. We meet just about once a month and we look at each other and we're like, man, when you look at the numbers and trying to get the numbers of people in Valley Center is a very difficult thing to do. It depends on who you ask and whatever. But we're like, man, if we each like if every single person in Valley Center would show up on church on a given Sunday, we would need like 20 mega churches just to sit everybody. And it's like it's overwhelming. And Jesus is like, I'm sending you out, and it's overwhelming. There's no way you can do this. And he says, this, he gives a solution, and the solution isn't to come up with a bunch of great programs or a bunch of gimmicks about how you could do this. You know, now that we've kind of started movie night again, and we had Soul Surfer, Anna's like, man, there's a great movie. It's not even in print anymore. It's only 20 minutes long, but it's called The Gospel Blimp. And it's basically making fun of churches and their programs from the 60s. It's like put it, it's like set to leave it to beaver, like model, black and white. And these group, they have a Bible study at a house. Well, the next door neighbor is like a heathen. He like drinks beer and it's like, like whatever, like there's all kinds of stuff. He's like so unreached. And like, how are we going to reach this guy? And so they scheme and they come up with this plan and they ultimately their solution is to get this blimp. 
and they're going to get a blimp. They're going to fly over the guy's house, and then they're just going to start bombing the guy's house with leaflets. And so they put this plan into work, and they start driving the guy crazy. One of the guys finally quits from the team, decides he's going to start, you know, go over, play golf, enjoy a beer with them sort of thing. And he ends up reaching the guy for Christ through relationship. Man, where was I going with this story? <laughs> but, but we can come up, our solution for the overwhelm, we, we come up with some crazy ideas. But what God tells us to do, he says, therefore, beseech, which is a fancy word for pray, pray to the Lord, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, to his harvest. One of the, like the greatest days when I first came to Valley Center to restart this church when there were like eight people. And, and there was a lot of like kind of, you know, there was all kind of stuff going on. My own sin, my own garbage, my own fears, my own thing. And somebody once said to me in passing, I don't think they realized the impact they had. They said, don't worry, it's Jesus's church and he'll take care of it. You're just like an under shepherd. Just trust in him. Sounds so simple, but it's like so profound that, that no, this is God's church. Like it's not my church. I'm just serving him. And, and when we have problems, when there's people that we want to reach, we go to him and we ask, Lord, you're the one who cares about people. You care about people way more than I care about people. When I read the whole Bible, what I see is that people get frustrated with God way sooner than God gets frustrated with people. He's so long-suffering and loving, and he wants to reach them. And Jesus says, you're going to go out there. You're going to be overwhelmed. When you see this, don't take matters into your own hands. Don't take them to court. Take them to God. Say, Lord, we need help. And then here's where I see the Shackleton. We see the three guys turn around. And then he says, listen, I send you out. Behold, go, behold. I send you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Uh Uh-oh. That doesn't. Lambs against wolves will lose every single time. On like the video streaming thing, I've discovered this program I've heard about. It's the Discovery Channel, like the Nature Channel. And it's set in Yellowstone. And it like is the first scene is like going into the fall and it's starting to get cold. And they're going to talk about how cold and as it gets cold, the only animal that can survive in negative 40 is wolves. And the wolves, as it gets colder, they start kind of watching the elk and the moose and the big game animals. And they like they're going to get weak. And then the wolves basically team up on these poor little Bambis, you know, like, and there's one and you're watching and you're like, oh no, oh no. But the only place it can go is into the freezing cold water and the wolves just surround it. You know, it's the great narrator, you know, like the English guy. And the poor little elk will have to sit there. He, he can only survive so long in the water while these wolves just play and wait for them. And then when they wait, they will just devour him. And Jesus says, we're that elk, but we're a lamb, which is even like less than an elk. I mean, like this isn't good. This is no bueno. This is bad. Like if you're following Jesus, he says, I'm sending you out as lambs amongst wolves. And yet these guys still go. Like, they're praying, Lord, I warn you, Lord, we see all of the lostness around our community. Won't you raise somebody up? 
He might raise you up. He might send you somewhere. Like, I don't know what he's doing in your life, but go get a passport. Like, that's kind of like, you know, lay your cards down. Because this happened to me. Oh, Lord, I'll go wherever you want to go. Where's your passport? I don't have a passport. (laughs) Well, if I tell you to go to Mexico, can you go to Mexico? (laughs) No, I don't have a passport. That way I'll pray for other people. Then you suddenly get a passport. Lord, will you raise up people? I'll go wherever you send me. Then he starts going, how's Mongolia sound to you? (laughs) Not good. Lord, do you know that I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years and like that whole Chinese and Russian thing, like Mongolia lays right there and I've been watching a lot of Jack Bauer and he had a really bad incident in China so I'm really concerned about my life, that that might happen to me. Well, I still want you to go. And it's kind of terrifying when when he uses people to raise up people. And then we're sent as lambs out to wolves. If This group of people, I think that half of them would turn away. Like I look at the three guys that turned away. Jesus doesn't make you, the, salvation is totally through grace. You know, we're saved by grace through faith. There's no question. But then once you're saved, God doesn't he doesn't call us to nothing. And the idea last week is that I shared about was, can you imagine at the altar? The husband says in good times and bad times and riches and poorness and sickness and health and. You know, I got a wedding. I'm doing a wedding. George and Evie Farrington's grandson's getting married next weekend. And that's going to be a tearjerker for me, big time. And then just imagine, you know, Jesus is going to the cross. He's making these great vows of, of sacrificing his life for us, paying for our sins. And then the bride looks back to the husband and says, well, I've modified my vows. And as a pastor, sometimes a girl will say, you know, or somebody, hey, we've modified our vows. Can we just write our own vows? Oh, that's touching. Yeah, go for it. And the girl looks at him and says, you know, I'm with you in good times only, riches only, and health only. And I'm not going to forsake all others till the death do us. Maybe we part. Can you imagine the look on the groom's face? Like, huh? And Jesus has committed all and he's provided all for us, but he wants us to follow out. He wants us to, to come into obedience and to seek after him. And later in Luke, Jesus is going to start challenging Peter and the apostles. And it's a beautiful picture. And I've lost which chapter it's in. And Peter basically like, oh, Lord, where else can we go? You're the Messiah. We have no other place to go. All we have is to you and we'll follow you. And that's where God wants us because that's the best place for us to be. But he doesn't paint a prosperity gospel picture. And then in verse 4, he tells them how to travel. Okay, you're going out as lambs amongst wolves. Carry no money belt, no bag, no shoes. Travel light. We're getting ready to go on vacation. And sometimes I, like, hate going on vacation. Like, why do we take vacations? Like, I'm all for these staycations, you know? Like, like it's so stressful. (sighs) But it seemed like such a great idea. You know, Anna grew up in Spain as a missionary kid. Her Spanish grandmother is getting sick. And last, you know, um, Ruth has a granddaughter who grew up in Spain. And we met her and she said, oh, you know what? I have two condos right on the beach where Anna grew up. They sit empty from September to May. You're welcome to go. I think, okay, let's go. But now we're like sitting there going, now how many diapers does Ellie go through in like one day? Times that by this. How many pairs of shoes? How many chains of clothes? Going to Mongolia was way easier because I just had a pair of pants and a shirt and everything else was like Starbucks I was bringing to the missionaries. And so it gets like stressful packing and planning. Jesus is saying, travel light. Don't worry about carrying extra. Totally rely upon me when you go out. 
And he says, and greet no one on the way. Now, he's not saying like you're walking down the path and the disciples were like, oh, I see somebody like this. So I'm not going to don't see you. That's kind of how Americans are with people on the road anyhow. One of the funniest games I like playing is I hike Cal's Mountain down in San Diego. And I just look at everybody in the eye and say, good afternoon. How are you doing? People look at you like you're a total weirdo if you just greet them. Try it. It's hilarious. People think you're stalking them. Why are you saying hi to me? Why are you saying hi? What's wrong with you? But in their culture, you'd meet somebody on the path, you'd start talking. How are you doing? Maybe they could end up in you going to their house for dinner sort of thing. He's saying, stay focused on your tasks. Travel light. Get to where you're going. Don't be distracted. Then in verse 5, he says, whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. If a man of, if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you. For the labor is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. So he says, when you go into town and you find a place to stay, peace is almost viewed as like this commodity. He's not saying just the, the standard greeting of like, oh, shalom, which means peace. It's like, no, peace be to you. Like you have this commodity. And if it's a man of peace or a person of peace, then he says it's to their house, not to him. So the house, peace be upon this house. And if it's a man of peace, the peace will stay there. If he's not a man of peace, it's like that commodity is going to come back to you and move on. But he says, if you're brought in, whatever they feed you, just eat it. Don't be a difficult house guest. Eat and drink what they give you. The labor is worthy of his wages. He's like, listen, you're trusting upon me. I'm going to provide for you by people feeding you and caring for you. Like, I love giving. Like, I would much rather... When I'm going to catch myself, see, I'm not really that hospitable. That's something I'm working on. I, but, but like the idea of like giving to people, like Anna is very hospitable. Like we could have people at our house 24-7. I need like alone time to kind of recoup. But I like giving in other different ways. But like giving is so much easier. But when you're the recipient of giving, this is one of the hardest things like for me is like to realize like, no, I get paid. Be- like my salary comes because people give. Like they support me in the cause of the ministry that I'm doing. It's humbling. He said, hey, when people invite you in, you're a worker, you're serving me, you're going, doing the things of the kingdom. When they, when they feed you, don't feel guilty like you've got to you know, pay them for the food. Just follow me. Don't be bouncing around from house to house like you get a better offer in a town. Focus on the mission. Verse 8, he continues, whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you. And I love this. This reminds me of going to Mexico. One of the very first things, if you ever do a Mexico trip with us, we go down there. We get a little briefing. Then we go out to wherever we go in the middle of nowhere. And and always like Rick mentions, he got Mexico in my head. Like, get worried about going to Mexico. Like, I have the spiritual gift of worrying. It's no joke. Like, already there's like a Mexico trip coming. Like, we're going to Spain for vacation. But then I'm like, I have this great idea. Hey, well, if we're going to be in Spain, we have missionaries in Italy That'll be awesome. We'll just go visit Italy. And I haven't really been worried about Italy, but I really should have been like asking you guys for prayer because I like toss and turn at night. Like worried about going there to visit our missionaries because it's a whole spiritual like warfare thing happening. Europe is dead to God. And we have a missionary that's Italian that's starting a Bible college that's preaching the gospel, changing lives in this place where like Rome is mentioned in the Bible where people are just dead to God and he's having an impact. And I kind of feel like, kind of like, oh, are you going to Italy? People are like, oh, Italy. I'm like, well, it's not as glorious as it sounds. 
and I'm tossing and turning. It's like, why? Like, it seemed like such a great idea nine months ago. But then every night since I bought the tickets to do the little, you know, trip over to like Italy, it's like, what was I thinking? Why am I doing this to my family? This is going to be a nightmare. Flying from LAX to Madrid, leaving on Monday night, getting to Spain Tuesday. And then on Thursday, we have to basically, like if we're in San Diego and you have a flight out of LAX, what was I thinking? Like my kids never even flown. Like people are going to hate us on the plane. (laughs) We're going to be that family. And I like plan a trip to Mexico. I think, oh Lord, we're going to step out and we're going to go and we're going to we're going to bless this, these people in Mexico. We pay the seven hundred and fifty dollars for the the house, and then for the next six months, I'm tossing and turning at night, going, Lord, why am I going to Mexico? Don't you read the newspaper, Lord? Don't you know what's going on down there? And he says, Haven't you read your newspaper? <laughs> like, there's plenty of bad stuff that happens in your area. And you're pretty comfortable in your bed. But what about them? They have no house. Like you're building a 16 by 20 four-walled place on a cement slab with no water, no anything. And they're going to be so blessed. And you're a little worried about your safety. I have big news. If God wants you dead, he just flips the switch. You could be drinking coffee in your living room, reading the paper in the most ideal condition, and he could take you. You could be on an airplane that crashes and be the one sole survivor if God wants you to stay alive. Every breath that we have, it's because of him. And I know that I worry because I don't trust him. And that's a confession. I mean, that's something I deal with all the time. I have all of our excuses. And then you go to Mexico. See, I'm on another rabbit trail here. The whole purpose of what I'm saying, when you go to Mexico... This family that has nothing, you build until noon. They scrape together a, like a month's salary and they feed you a lunch. And you eat it with a smile and you get seconds and you continue eating to bless the family. There are no allergies in Mexico. There's no vegetarianism in Mexico. Like you eat it. And this is like you eat it. And I love the Ong family. Like of all of the families in the church, they probably have a lot of like very serious like health considerations concerning food. And Josh's biggest prayer whenever we go, Joshua says, you know what? We need to be praying for the food. We need to be praying for the food. And they go down there and they eat like rock stars, you know, and they've never been sick. Like, they've, like but it's humbling to me. Like, I just pray for the food that, like, that there'd be plenty of it because I love it so much. And that I, like, that I wouldn't have to fight people for, like, you know, four servings. But he literally is, like, praying for his family that they wouldn't get sick over something minor. And to see God take care of them. And God's just saying, trust me, eat what's there. Okay, verse 9. Heal those who are sick and say to them the kingdom of God who has come near to you. He'd given them power to heal, to, to share with them that the Messiah is here, that these are the forerunners. Preach to them that the kingdom of God has come, that the Messiah is in their midst. And see what God does through this. He goes on to say, verse 10. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, Even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off in protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. See, we have this picture of Jesus that he was like a very sensitive, sort of sweet, not in your face sort of guy. Um, 
you know, most of the time he's wearing like a loincloth, looks like a Swedish guy with love, you know, like long hair or a tie-dye shirt, just saying love to everybody. He tells the guys, if they don't receive you, go stand in the middle of the street, like take off your shoes, start wiping the dust off, say, we protest this, like judgments to come to you. Be sure of this, that even though you reject our message, the kingdom of God has come near and you'll give an account. Jesus goes on to up the notch. Now, I don't think he's saying this for them to say, but he's saying this for them to know as they go out. Verse 12, he says, I say to you, will be more tolerable in that day for Sodom than for that city. You could be the most unchurched person in America, and you know what Sodom is. (laughs) Sodom took the wrath of God pretty good. Like it was pretty bad for them. Annihilated. And he says to the people that reject you, that it's more tolerable in Sodom. That there's this sort of degree of consequence, which is troublesome to me. It goes on to say, like he's saying that there's measures of punishment due people. Some have more punishment, some have less. He goes and he says, woe to you. And this woe is like a warning, a sadness in a heart, like a sorrow in his heart as he says this. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. And verse 15, he's going to say Capernaum. We don't know what happened in Chorazin and Bethsaida, but apparently miracles happened there. It's not recorded in the New Testament. But Capernaum was Jesus's like launching point of his ministry on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. Ton of miracles happened there. And these three areas where Jesus operated and did miracles, where the religious people were, where all sorts of stuff happened. He says, woe to you. For if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, these are two cities that were very unchurched, kind of like the Vegas of their day. Now, not that they had casinos, but they didn't care about things of God. They were not Jewish in background. They hadn't been exposed to the things of God. They were looked down upon by the Jewish people. And he says, for if the miracles which had been performed, if for if the miracles had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. He said, they would have repented. You guys just get more arrogant. And when I hear him say this, it reminds me of that Old Testament story of Jonah and the Ninevites. Like, it's just a kid's story, but that story of Jonah is powerful. People will try to tell you that, oh, God wasn't, a, and like, he didn't care about evangelism in the Old Testament. God cared about all peoples from the very beginning. And so, The Ninevites were horrible, ruthless people. Nahum chapter 3 tells us that as you enter the city, there'd be bodies just stacked up. That people would be um, impaled on stakes. They would light people with fire for like their party lights. Ruthless, ruthless people. Their victims most often were the Jewish people. God comes to Jonah, a prophet in Israel, and says, I want you to go to Nineveh. This is modern day um, oh, why am I blanking on time? Northern Iraq. Um, whatever. It'll come to me tonight at three in the morning. But it's a major place in today. He says, go there. All I want you to say is repent for the wrath of God is coming in 40 days. Nineveh goes, I mean, Jonah goes to the opposite side of the world towards Spain. We all know this story. Swallowed up by a great fish. In the fish's belly for three days, and he's barfed up on the shoreline. Then he goes there, kind of against his will. He shows up at Nineveh, and he says, 40 days, repent. God's wrath is coming upon you. 
I don't think he had much motivation. He didn't really want them to repent. He didn't want to deal with them because they're not religious. They're not Jewish. They were pretty evil people. They did a lot of mean stuff to his friends and family. He goes up to the edge of the town, gets the best seats to watch the show. 40 days. Okay, the ticker's going. Just waiting to see the fireworks, to see them wiped off the face of the earth. And as he's sitting there waiting for them to get wiped off, the whole town repents. From the king all the way down to the cows, all to have a fast, put on sackcloth and ash, they repent of their sins before the Lord. And Jonah is thrown a total temper tantrum on the side of the hill. And God sprouts up a little plant, and then, the, then he, a worm kills the plant. And Jonah's now thrown a temper tantrum over this. And God's like, listen, I love all these people. What, you're more concerned about this plant than you are these people. The key to understanding Jonah, not that we're studying Jonah right now, is that Jonah wrote Jonah. It's a letter of repentance. He's showing his shortcomings. And so when Jesus says this, if miracles happened over there, the place, the people that you guys don't like, they would repent and respond. But verse 14, but it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the judgment than for you. And Capernaum will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You will be brought down to Hades. The warning here is to religious people. All through Luke, very, very, very severe warnings to the religious people. The people of Capernaum thought they were good to go with God. They had a synagogue. They were doing all of this. They had a huge synagogue. You can go there today. You can see the base is still there. They rebuilt the rest of it a little bit later. They thought they were good to go. And God says, you know what, you religious people, you hear every single day that you've been in church growing up, yet you resist me. There's greater warning to you than those who have never heard about me. And all of us find ourselves in a church today. I don't know if this is the first time you've been in a church or you come to church every single Sunday. But there is a great warning to me and to us that if we come, we, re- we read the Bible, we study it, we say, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. We sing all of these songs, which really are dangerous songs to be singing in worship because we own, we, we're kind of signing a con like, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And then we leave from here and we go do whatever we want to do that has nothing to do with God. You know, it's, these are, these, it should concern us. And so there's a warning here to these people. And then Jesus continues to them and says, the one who listens to you listens to me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. So he says, hey, you're going out as lambs as amongst wolves. But don't worry because you're representing me. And if they reject you, they're rejecting me. If they're rejecting me, they're rejecting the father. They receive you, they're receiving me and the father. Let go, you're in my security. Now, nothing, we don't know the story between 16 and 17. I wish there was more story here. But it's like Jesus finished, he gives them their marching orders, they leave, and then all of a sudden they're back in verse 17. And all we see is that the 70 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. This is so awesome compared to chapter 9 where they kept messing. They come back, it's like, Jesus, check it out. We healed people. We shared about the kingdom. People responded. Lives were being changed. It never ceases to amaze me the fear I have of stepping out to go to Mongolia, Mexico, wherever it is, I have the gift of worrying. Fear. All of the, like everything that can go wrong. We're changing insurance right now where we're looking at one insurance and the guy that I've been dealing with, I'm like, 
Well, I've been going to Rick for backup, you know, talking to him all this stuff. What does this look to you? And I look at the guy, and I, yesterday I'm on the phone with him. Like we're getting close to the end. And I say, you know what? I like to take stuff out to the very worst case scenario because then you know if you're covered. And he's like, I've noticed that about you. <laughs> well, you got to what if everything to death because nothing will catch you by surprise. So like going to Mexico, like it might happen in November or the spring or whenever we go, but I'm already like, okay, we get a flat tire. Drug dealers take us hostage. What's my backup plan? What all of this stuff? And then on the other end, it's like, okay, we're going to go down there. We're American Christians. We're going to go bless the socks off these people because we're American Christians and we know more than, you know, like, whatever, in arrogance. And then you get there, and the last house that I built for was two houses ago for our church. It was this Christian family. I don't speak a lick of, I mean, I speak a lick of Spanish. I don't speak, I can't speak Spanish, but I know some words. But I could tell, like, like, like Esmeralda was talking with them and Alberto talking with them. And to see, like, the joy in their face and to have, like, lunch with them and to pray with them, it was, like, just humbling. And the blessing that came out of that. And every time I step out in fear, whatever it is, like, the reward and the joy that comes from, like, walking in obedience to the Lord is overwhelming. Now, God might be, not be calling you to, like, even leave Valley Center, but the whole premise of, like, Lord, here I am, and he calls you to do something, and there will always appear some, like, crazy thought that you think there's no way he could be asking me to do this, and then you sort of res- respond, and there's all kind of, like, excuses to come. Then you just, like, do it, and, like, the blessing behind, like, I don't think, I can't, you know, I, my little, like, star, you know, the legalese, like, I'm pretty positive that every time I've stepped out for God, that I've been blessed beyond belief and that so much joy has come through, like, scary, horrifying stuff. It, when I say scary, horrifying stuff, I'm telling, like, I, I probably should invite, like, give a card that, that I don't even really invite them to go to church, but I give them a card that has the church time information and I hand it. To, like, that could be a horrifying thing in my little world. So whatever God puts on your heart and then you respond and you do it, it's amazing to see how he blesses and the joy that comes out of it. And they're just like ecstatic, Lord, like we went out just like you said. There was power. Lives were changed. This is awesome. And then Jesus says, and he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, every commentator is totally confused on this one. They offer all kind of possibilities, but they don't really know. And in Isaiah chapter 14, verses like 12 through 19, it's the picture of, of Isaiah the prophet seeing Satan fall from heaven. He was this angel that was supposed to minister to the Lord at the most highest level. But he has these five I wills that he wants to be like God, that he wants to be better than God, that he wants to rule just like God, all of these things. He gets pride in his heart and he's cast out of heaven. And it's like the same picture that Jesus is getting joy. He's like, ah, they got it. Chapter 9 of Luke was so rough for Jesus of what he was dealing with. And now it's like the light bulb is coming on. And he's like, this is awesome. When you're out doing this stuff, the spiritual war that's happening behind the scenes and that there's victory there is bringing him joy. He goes on to say, behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing will injure you. He says, you know what? If I go out, I'll protect you. 
And even in death, he protects us. Even in death, he protects us. Our hope is not in this life, but in the next life. But in the older I get, the more like scared of like little things I get. I'm like turning, oh, I don't want to like, I'm turning into something that's not manly. <laughs> like I'm just not like, like I used to like sleep like wherever. I'm not like, I don't know how I did it all around the world. I could be sleeping on the middle of the ground. Scorpion could crawl on me, flick it off. Snake, whatever. It's not afraid of anything. Now it's like I'm in my backyard in Valley Center, like shuffling my feet. Kids, don't play there. Like there might be a brown recluse or something. Like just terrified, you know? Like it gets just gets scarier the older you get. And it says that in Ecclesiastes. And he's saying, don't worry about these things. I'll protect you. Stop being so afraid of clinging to this life, but put your eyes on me and trust in me. I'll take care of you. But he says, even though I'll protect you, Verse 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. It's awesome. We don't have a clue who these people are. Their names aren't recorded in scripture. They're not recorded in any great missionary books. We have no clue who these guys are. They're nobodies. We're all nobodies. But in Christ, our names recorded in heaven. And I love this, like just chapter nine, seeing the apostle John wanting to pray down fire and wrath on the people of, the, of Samaria. Jesus's nickname for the apostle John was son of thunder. Like that's like from Jesus, like you are out of control, John. But for the whole rest of John's life, as he wrote the gospel of John, as he wrote first and second John, he would never write his own name. After the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, after he lived the longest of all of the apostles, by the end of his life, he only saw himself as a man whom Jesus loved, and that's how he would refer to himself. So we know him as the apostle that Jesus loved. Not that there was any special thing, but his humility. And this is where you can walk with the Lord. God can do great things in your life. Don't turn into religious, smug people that think you're better than everybody else. Like, I love Dan and Kelly because we have, like, this big war between us. Like, I can say this. No, no, no. Between homeschool and public school. Kelly and I were public schooled. Our spouses were homeschooled. And so we have this big, like, you know, war. Like, oh, you you guys were homeschooled here. You don't know what's going on. Public school is where it's at. And then they, like, totally flip it on us. And it's funny because we don't really mean it. But there are people who on both sides will really start judging Christians for how they live their life or non-Christians for what they have or don't have. And Jesus wants to say, you know what? I'm just a sinner saved by grace. It doesn't matter what school I go to, what political party I'm affiliated with, whatever. I'm just a sinner who is saved by grace. I don't have it all figured out. Whether you're, you're not Bill Murray, Billy Graham. That's it. Whether you're Bill Murray or Billy Graham, perfect example. (laughs) Two totally different extremes. Billy Graham's like, you know, he doesn't have many days left. But he would look at you and say, I'm just a sinner saved by grace. All that stuff I did doesn't matter. Just that Jesus died for me, that's all that matters. And that's all he wants people to come to know his Savior. And then Jesus just like that they got it, that their eyes were open. Last week I shared, or two weeks ago I shared about Pablo. And we, Ann and I went to a Mexican church for two years. 
there's like an eight-year-old kid. Man, every weekend they gave the gospel to him. Then after like a year, I'd start going, okay, Pablo, how do you go to heaven, brother? He'd look at me and he'd say, you could tell like the wheels were turning. He'd look at it and he's like, I got it. Don't punch my sister. No, that, that's not, not punching your sister is good, but it won't get you to heaven. Can you, how about we, that'll be your mulligan. How about we go for round two? He's like, I got it. Don't cuss. It's like, no, Pablo, Pablo, Pablo. And I don't even remember how the story ended, but I want to make it a happy ending. Let's pretend like a couple years goes by. I say, Pablo, how do you get to heaven? He says, you know what? I trust in Jesus. Saved by, by grace. I would be like doing cartwheels. When they get it, like the kids, like I love, like in the church, like a couple of them that were baptized, all of you, how do you get to heaven? And they say, trust in Jesus. I've like came to know him as my son. But then they give the right answer. If there's so much joy there. And I see Jesus doing cartwheels. At that very time, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit, saying, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, and who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. It's like they got it, Lord, that your plan is so backwards that, that the children, the least of these, and he's not talking necessarily about little kids, but the outcasts of culture, those, they got it. Like the religious people, the Pharisees, and for the most part, not all of them, they totally missed God's plan. They thought they were the experts in the law, and they missed what God was doing right before them. And I don't want to be like those guys, that we get so bound up. Like I have very strong biblical convictions about a lot of different things, but trying to figure out what things are like the things that we like hold in our right hand that know that I'll die for and I'll fight for. And then there's other things that aren't as important, but I feel strongly, but they're not things to divide over. Like we got to humble ourselves and we get like that, that God's plan is often backwards from ours. And then in the midst of this, he turns to the disciples, the 12, not the 72. And he said to them privately, blessed are the eyes which see the things you see. For I say to you that many prophets and kings wish to see the things which you see and did not see them and hear the things which you hear and did not hear them. He said, like all through the Old Testament, there were kings and prophets longing for the day that the Messiah would come. You're witnessing it. Do you know how many people have longed for this, but your eyes are seeing it? You're so blessed. And then an attorney is going to stand up and ruin everything next week <laughs> to ask a question. No offense to any attorneys. I have some in my family. And... But there's just so much joy. And in this story, I see like three main things. Like the first is that Jesus goes, loves you so much that he goes through great links like to win you to Christ, to, to help you come to this place where you say, yes, Lord, I believe I'll follow after you. He doesn't give up. After becoming a Christian and like through the advent of Facebook, like I've reconnected with a lot of people from my history and I become friends with people and I think, now I think, oh, they're like, really, like man, look at them. They're like really a Christian, like a believer and stuff. Like the family in Italy. Like she went to high school with me. I had no idea who she was in high school. <laughs> But I look at them, I'm like, yeah, they were like freaks. They were like Jesus freaks. They were always nagging me about stuff. I couldn't stand them. 
And now I look back and go, man, praise the Lord. Like all these people that Jesus sent into my life to nag me, that finally, finally something clicked where I believed. And to know that he's doing that in your life. Like if you've come to a place where you believe, he's still going to send people to kind of like encourage you to take it to the next level with him. If you haven't come to trust in him as savior, he's going to send all kinds of circumstances and people because he loves you and he wants you to turn to him. The second thing I see in the story, this whole section about Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, that, that Jesus was there doing miracles and yet they rejected him. They saw everything. And he tells Capernaum that you're not going to be exalted to heaven, that you're going to be cast into Hades. Today, if you visit Israel, Capernaum, there's nothing there. Like you drive out in the middle of nowhere. There's a bunch of like rocks tipped over and a synagogue. The only reason there's any life there is because Christians from around the world want to see where all the miracles happen in Capernaum. Nobody lives there. It's desolate. And it's a, it's a humbling reminder to see that this is the place that Jesus, that they had a huge synagogue. And that he says, woe to you. Don't miss what I'm doing. And if you're in the church, if you're listening to God's word, if you've been exposed to the truth, we need to be careful. Careful about the songs that we sing. Careful about the prayers that we pray. Say, no, Lord, I really mean it. And, and it's a work. And like, I'm a total work in progress. I have not attained it. But I press on and I want. But I see those three guys that Jesus turned away and I see all of their sins in my face in my own life. And it brings me to my knees and say, Lord, no, I want to follow after you. Help me to step out. Lord, when I'm holding back in wealth or comfort or relationships or holding me back, Lord, help me to move forward. And then the final thing I see in the story is like the risk versus reward. Like stepping out for Jesus is a scary thing. But the rewards of following him and living obediently are matched by nothing else. The contentment and peace and joy that he brings when we walk in obedience with him, the Bible, there are not words to describe it. So I'm not going to attempt to describe it with my words. But if you have experienced it, you know it. And Father, we just come before you, Lord, and I thank you again, Lord, for Jesus, that he came, that he humbled himself, that he stepped from heaven to earth to live the perfect life. That his words, his example were were recorded for us to challenge us, Lord, to, to trust in him. Father, we thank you that our relation with late relationship with you, our being at peace with you is totally um, by grace. It was a gift. Lord, that you've gone out of the way um, for us because you love us. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just take that grace and reject it and or think that we're just getting fire insurance so that we won't go to hell. But Lord, I pray that you would soften our hearts. Lord, help us to see what you want us to do in our life, Lord, day by day, little things, that we would see your hand, that we would hear your voice, that we would respond to you. Father, as we step out, as we serve you, as we live for you, um, I just thank you for the great joy that comes Um, through things that just don't make sense from a human perspective, that giving uh, comes with great blessing, that stepping out, that seeing things through your lens uh, brings so much joy. 
Father, we pray that you would continue um, doing the work that you started in our life. Lord, I pray for each person, um, Lord, that they would walk closer with you day by day. We love you, Father, and we pray this in Christ's good name. Amen.